0: When I started this series three weeks ago, I suggested that while Hebrews shows up in that part of the New Testament we call the epistles, it, it really has the feel of a sermon, not a letter. It's structured like a sermon. A long sermon, yes, but it's structured like a, a sermon. And it was apparently written down so that it could be distributed among the churches to be heard by, by all the people. A lot of pastors do that today. They'll, they'll take their sermons and turn them into a book, though not so much anymore because now we have something better than books, and that's YouTube. Well, maybe it's not better, but it's easier and cheaper, so uh, you can put your sermon up on YouTube for nothing. Um, it was a sermon that needed to be heard in the first century, and it's a sermon that needs to be heard today. It's, it's a sermon that's structured with warnings And exhortations throughout the whole sermon That are relevant now as much as they were 2,000 years ago The sermon was addressed to people who were in danger Of giving up on being Christians run out of steam, run out of energy, run out of courage And they were thinking about going back to the old way of life In this particular case, going back to Judaism But it could be going back to anything Any kind of a way of living and he carefully warns them of the consequences of doing that, and he encourages them to continue following Jesus faithfully. Don't give up, he says to them. In chapter 10, we, we looked at this verse. We are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. That's the warning. You turn away from God, it results in your destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved that's the encouragement the the book is woven around these warnings and encouragements now it's easy to get lost in the book of Hebrews uh, especially if you're not familiar with the Old Testament because it it quotes the Old Testament roughly 60 or 70 times and it does require careful and attentive reading and rereading but the argument of the book is very simple there's only one reason for not giving up and turning back and that one reason is the superiority of Jesus Christ, the greatness of Christ. He is greater than any other. You, you can take that blank there, and you can put in any name or anything in that blank, and Jesus is greater. That's the one essential argument of the book of Hebrews. Why would you turn your back on the greatest person in our universe? Now, as we focus on chapter 7 today, we hear the preacher's argument for the greatness of Jesus wrapped up in the person of an obscure figure who briefly, briefly appears in a shadowy corner of the book of Genesis. His name is Melchizedek. He's the one that we see on the right. Uh, The one on the left is Abraham. How do you know? Abraham's got a spear. Why does Abraham have a spear? Because he's just come back from a battle where he's been the victor. Here's another depiction. Abraham, again, is dressed as a man who's coming back from battle. Now, he looks more like a a Roman, maybe, coming back from battle than a Palestinian, but nevertheless, you get the picture. Let me briefly outline the Genesis story. Each town of any size in that time was like a city-state, Each town had its own king. And these little city-states were more often than not at war against each other. Now, in this region around the Dead Sea, four city-states had formed an alliance, and they basically ran the show for about a dozen years. They conquered everybody and told them what to do, what not to do. The king of Sodom, Sodom, who was not one of those four kings, got tired of this, and he made an alliance with four other city-states, and they went to war against these four kings. So you have five kings, including the king of Sodom, against these other four kings. Now you see Sodom on the map here. Uh, Sodom is, is down here in the right corner. Uh, not exactly sure where it is because the, sea of, the Dead Sea has changed its size and shape since then. So Sodom and Gomorrah are both underwater so you see the Dead Sea. If you see a little dotted line, it's not nearly as, as long as it used to be, but it's a bit wider. So that's where, that's where Sodom is. That's where the king of Sodom was residing. Now, over here, you see the name Abraham. Abraham lived up near Mamre. Now, why is that important? Because Abraham's nephew, Lot, lived in Sodom. So what happened was uh, Sodom was captured uh, Everything was taken, including the, the, the people in town. And Lot and his family were taken captives. Abraham, living near Mamre, some distance away, found out about it. And Abraham took from among his servants. Now, you've got to catch the scale of this. He took from among his servants 318 fighting men, men trained for battle. Makes you wonder how many servants the guy had. This is a large plantation, as it were. You've got a lot of folks there. Um, he takes his 318 fighting men, and they go in pursuit of this army of the four kings and everything they've taken. And he chases them northward up towards Damascus. Now, look at the, the, the next uh, slide. That's Damascus up there in the, in the far upper right-hand corner. And uh, that's where he finally catches up with them. He stages a daring nighttime raid, and he and his little army of men defeat the four kings and recapture all the lost goods and the lost people. Now, what he then does is he proceeds to head back home, but instead of going down on this side, it's a lot nicer to travel on on the west side of the Jordan River so he comes back instead of going on the right side of Jordan he comes on the left side and he comes down until he gets to this valley of Sheba there he encounters two kings they meet him there in this valley of Sheba one is the king of Sodom now he's obviously there saying thanks for getting my loot back can I have it please <laughs> he says I'll give you a bunch and Abraham says no I don't want any of your stuff I just want Lot and his family the other person that he met there was um, a man by the king, the name the king of Salem. And he meets him there. His name is Melchizedek. Now, what was Salem? Anybody here guess? The king of Salem? It's just a city. Jerusalem. Uh, it's probably the forerunner of Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is, is the king of Salem. Now, he's not just merely a king. He's also a priest. He's a priest of God Most High. Pretty rare in those days. People were generally uh, priests of the local Canaanite deities, but he's not. He's a priest of the Lord Most High. His name means King of Righteousness. Now, Kizedek means King of Righteousness. Can anybody tell me what the oldest Jewish synagogue is in, in Winnipeg? Yes, Sherezedek. Ah, same word as Melchizedek. Sherezedek means gates of righteousness. So anytime you see the Z-E-D-E-K, that means righteousness. Whether it's in Melchizedek's name or the Sherezedek's name, it's got something to do with righteousness. Two things happen in this story. The first thing is Abraham gives a tithe of everything he's captured and battled to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, it's not much of a story, is it? I don't think any of us would even know the name Melchizedek if it were not for the book of Hebrews. Oddly, the book of Hebrews uses Melchizedek to show us the unique greatness of Jesus. To build the case, Melchizedek is mentioned five times, five times in the book of Hebrews. It was mentioned briefly in Genesis, once in the Psalms, and five times in the book of Hebrews. First time we see his name is in chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 where the preacher connects two verses he takes he takes Psalm 27 and Psalm 110 verse 4 and he puts them together and he says in the same way Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest but God said to him you are my son today I have become your father and he says in another place you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews shows the figure of Melchizedek to show us that Jesus is both a superior priest and a superior sacrifice. Now, at first, that may feel like a bit of a stretch. How does he get from Melchizedek to the superiority of Jesus? We'll get there. But before we get there, let me remind you once again, over and over again, why is he preaching this sermon? Because people were thinking about giving up and quitting. Why doesn't he want them to give up and quit? Because there is none greater than Jesus. No greater priest, no greater sacrifice. So let's begin with the superior priest. The argument for Hebrews begins with a question. He asks the question, why is there a need for an order of Melchizedek and for a new priest who's part of the order? Now, the promise of God in Psalm 110 was that the Messiah would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Well, Look at the question in chapter 7, verse 11. He says, Why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? You couldn't be a priest unless you were a descendant of Aaron, tribal tribe of Levi. Only Levites could be priests. Now, Hebrew's answer is very brief and short. The answer is the old system didn't work. And one of the reasons it didn't work is the old priests kept dying off. The historian Josephus said that between Aaron and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there were 83 high priests. That's high priests. There were thousands and thousands of high priests. Born, they lived, they died. The other reason the system didn't work is they not only died, they were sinners. And they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. And you and I both know that some of them didn't do that very well. And some of them were pretty despicable sinners, had no business being priests. So God created something new, the order of Melchizedek in 100, Psalm 110. And Hebrews shows us that Jesus is our high priest in that order because he is both eternal and sinless. That's his point. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek because he is eternal and he's sinless. That's why he's qualified. Now let's look at how Hebrews connects the dots between Melchizedek and Jesus. We begin in in chapter 4, where Jesus is first referred to as the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Again, one of his little exhortations. The book is full of them. Let us hold firmly to our faith because Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is mentioned as a priest in chapter 2, but this is the first time he's called a high priest. Then in chapter 6, we hear this about Jesus. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6, verse 20. He's eternal. He doesn't pass away. He doesn't die and leave the people without a priest who represents them to God. Not like the priest who dies and leaves them to a priest who maybe really is a scoundrel as opposed to being a godly man. And then in chapter 7, verse 16, we hear that Jesus is one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry. He couldn't. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of, of, of Judah. But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, does this suggest that Melchizedek never died? Where in the Bible does it say that Melchizedek was eternal? It it doesn't. Should have a picture of Melchizedek up there, Sean. There we go. Uh, It doesn't. But it's apparent that in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek looks forward to and represents Jesus. In, in the old days, when, when uh, Barry and I were young, it's a long time ago, we talked about types, and we would have said that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. We don't use that language very much anymore, but it wasn't bad language. Now, consider this for just a moment. In a culture where genealogy was everything, when we get into Advent we'll read the long long painfully long genealogy of Jesus genealogy was everything in that culture who, whose tribe you were part of who was your grandfather, great grandfather etc. nothing is said about Melchizedek we have no idea who his parents were we don't know what ethnic group he was from nothing that's kind of odd There's no record of his death either. It's like he just shows up. He's got no beginning. He's got no end. He just shows up. And in this way, he points towards Jesus, who is eternal. He has no beginning. Jesus didn't start 2,000 years ago. He has existed forever. He's eternal. And he lives forever. He's the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, so he's, our, he's, he's the greatest high priest because he's a priest forever. And that part of the argument subbed up in chapter 7, uh, verses 24 and 25. So this is the third time we hear him say this. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, the other reason there's none greater than Jesus is that he has no sin. Look at verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need because he is one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted from the heavens. He, he describes the sinlessness of Jesus in five ways. First, he says he's holy. That's not the normal word for holy in the Bible. Usually, almost all the time in the Bible where you see the word holy, it's a translation of agios, which means to be separated from. Things were holy because they were separated and dedicated to God. This is osios, which means he's unpolluted. Pollution leaves a stain, a scum. Jesus has no pollution that taints his life. Number two, he's innocent. The word literally means there's nothing bad in him, uh, there's nothing morally inferior about Jesus. Number three, he's undefiled. His reputation is spotless. There's nothing there that anyone could ever accuse him of, rightly. And he's separated from sinners. Now, this is really the interesting one. That's the idea of holiness again. He's separated from sinners. And yet, he came precisely to be with sinners. He lived among sinners. He received sinners. He ate with sinners. He had a reputation of being a friend of sinners. And yet, he himself was no sinner. And lastly, he's exalted above the heavens. He's ascended into right hand. We say this in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's ascended into God's presence to be our intercessor. Now, not only is he a superior priest, he's a superior sacrifice. Because he intercedes for us. He doesn't need to offer a sacrifice of his own because he's not a sinner. This alone makes him superior. But what really makes him superior is what he does as a sacrifice. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So Jesus is both a superior priest and a superior sacrifice. Now this is a dense argument, and I've gone through it very quickly. And and maybe you're sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? So what? And what do we know about priests or sacrifices? Why do we care about priests or sacrifices? They have nothing to do with our lives. It's so removed far from removed of us that we can't even hardly think about it. Does it matter? Well, it matters a lot more than we know. Three weeks ago I suggested that during our lifetime uh, it's been a respectable thing to be a Christian. And it is still in a few places. However, increasingly we're finding ourselves completely out of sync with a culture that has no interest in a deity who created us or a deity that has any idea of telling us how we might want to live or what we might want to do with our earth. They have no idea that this God could be useful or needful in our lives. So God has been ignored, put on a cosmic shelf, among other antiquated ideas, and those who believe in him are increasingly mocked and ridiculed. But still, it hasn't been that hard for us. For Anna's generation, it's not going to be nearly as easy. Already, there are some jobs that you likely won't get if you're a Christian. There's already that loss. Already, it is risky. if you're looking for a job and you're getting some counsel, it would be risky to indicate anywhere on your resume that you're a Christian or that you go to church. You might not get the job. Following Jesus has always meant carrying a cross. He told us that we couldn't follow him without carrying a cross. And for us, as for many people in the history of the church, carrying a cross means terrible suffering. It means ridicule. It might mean a beating. It might mean jail. It might mean loss of property. And we might be tempted to turn back, to quit, to find an easier way to to live, a more comfortable way to live. But Hebrews reminds us we dare not turn back from Jesus. To find an easier way. For there is none greater in the universe than him. No greater person to follow than Jesus. No greater cause to which we can give our lives. Than to spread the good news about Jesus into our world. I want to close with one last reference to the book. Chapter 10. He says, You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever with joy. I think that word joy encompasses all these things it encompasses the ridicule, the beatings, the jail, the loss of property, even the loss of life. How can suffering be joyful? Because we are following the one who shows us how deeply we are loved by God. Does the human race deserve the sacrifice that we just remembered when we ate this bread and drank this cup this morning? Do we? No. From the very beginning, we have rebelled. And we're still rebelling. From the very beginning, we've been destroying what God created, and we're still doing it especially destroying other people. And yet, he's loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. We find joy in our suffering by keeping our eyes on the great lengths that God went to to love us and to show us his love and to save us.